Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. We both flicked our heads a little bit in that. That was extra sass for the way we're starting this episode. Yes. Extra sassy. That's always good. Yeah. that's. I live in that world of extra sass. (laughs) Before we get started for the week, we want to tell you guys a little bit about another podcast that we think you guys will really enjoy. Hey, I'm Patrick Hines. And I'm Julian Pensavalli. And together, we make the true crime comedy podcast, True True Crime Crime Obsessed. Each week, we watch a popular true crime documentary like The Keepers or Mommy Dead and Dearest. And then, using clips from the film, we break it down in a smart and respectful, but also sassy and hilarious way. Like this. That's awesome that you could just be like, I'm going to dig up my property and put in a pool. And then being like, this is going to be so lovely and luxurious and I'm going to relax. Oh my God! (laughs) Why are there plastic bags full of dead bodies? Like, wouldn't you have to move? I just have a lot of questions about chloroform, you guys. Out comes the chloroform. Can you imagine? It has the skull and crossbones on every bottle, right? It has to. And it comes with a little rag, right? The like, the like dirty rag that's been used way too many times. Like, and the bottle's half empty always, right? You guys, with over 1,000 five-star iTunes reviews. And over 1.5 million downloads. Maybe check us out because we're probably the new true crime podcast you've been looking for. You can find True Crime Obsessed anywhere you get your podcasts. Okay, bye. Bye.
Thank you guys so much. We've received a lot of new reviews this week, a lot of new subscribers. When you have new subscribers, new comments, new reviews, really, um, on iTunes, it boosts your ratings. And when your ratings are boosted, then you're featured in the top 200 of society and culture, like we've been in for a couple weeks now, which has been really cool. Not featured. Uh, we've just we're in there. there. We've yeah. visited for a few weeks, which is really cool because that's really the only way you have visibility on iTunes. Yeah, if you're for on sure. the chart. So that really is super helpful for us for new people to find us. We're literally never going to be on new and noteworthy no, ever. No, but ever. we're not really new anymore. So that ship has sailed, and I'm fine with it. Yeah, <laughs> we're not bitter betties at all. No. But anyway, so reviewing us um, on iTunes and subscribing and all that—that's super helpful, and we really do appreciate it. So if you haven't rated us on iTunes and you'd like to, we'd love to hear from you. And if you make it Arrested Development themed, I will know about it and I will really love it. She will share it all over. I will. All over, all over the place. Media. Mandy will have no idea what's going on. I'll just be rolling my eyes over here yeah. in the corner. She'll just see five stars and be excited. And I'll just be happy to have a Bluth quote to go with it. <laughs> all right. So we're just going to jump right into the episode. Uh, this story has kind of a little bit of everything. There's just, there really is a lot in this story. Um, Thomas Bartlett Whitaker, who we will refer to as Bart from now on, was born in Houston, Texas on December 31st, 1979 to Patricia and Kent Whitaker. He remained an only child for the first four years of his life until his younger brother, Kevin, was born in March of 1984. The Whitakers were an affluent family with Kent working as a comptroller of a major construction company. And for those who don't know, a comptroller... <laughs> Mandy, did you know? Because <laughs> I did not know. I definitely had to look this up. Um, it's a management level position that uh, is responsible for supervising the quality of accounting and financial reporting of an organization. So in this case, it was the family construction business. Right. I don't know why they don't just say, like, financial manager. Doesn't comptroller sound way cooler? <laughs> I guess. Because nobody know. knows what it is. It could be real important or it could be not that important. And yeah. who's going to question it? I wouldn't. No, you just hear that and you're like, whoa. You might be rich. I don't know. <laughs> Fancy job title. <laughs> <laughs> so Patricia was an elementary school teacher who delighted in being around children. She was, uh, the whole family was really active in the church, but Patricia also did some things with the Sunday school kids and she just really loved being around kids, not just her own, but even other people's, which... Hard pass. <laughs> the youngest son, Kevin, was more of a masculine and athletic type who struggled in academics, but excelled in all of those things that are stereotypically boy things. He played baseball and ran track and loved outdoor activities, including hunting and fishing. Bart, the oldest of the two boys, was a little bit different. He was very intelligent, and he eventually developed hyperlexia, which is excessive reading, um, which you wouldn't think would be like an issue. Right. But I, apparently for him, it did develop into a problem because that led to him kind of having a hard time differentiating between fantasy and reality, and he would continue to have this problem into his teenage and adult life. So as a child, his interest became increasingly feminine, and by the time he was about seven, he realized that he had romantic interests in other boys. Early in his life, he displayed many characteristics of Asperger's syndrome, and he believed that he did not fit in or belong with the type of family that he was born into. So this type of, um, you know, well-to-do affluent family. He felt like he really wasn't, he didn't belong in that kind of circle. Yeah. When Bert reached high school age, he began to tell his classmates and friends that he was adopted. He felt that he was very unlike his mother and brother and felt more of a connection to his father's side of the family. He actually pretended to be someone he wasn't, even 
taking his lies to higher levels when he started to tell close friends that he was training for a secret government program that chose gifted children to train as spies. That's not even a thing, is it? Well, I think there's a Cody Banks movie with Frankie Muniz from Malcolm in the Middle, (laughs) and he was like a spy kid, so maybe he watched that show. I don't know. (laughs) As Bart moved further and further away from reality, his feelings of alienation from his family increased, and his hatred for his mother and brother grew a problem that his father seemed completely oblivious to. In fact, Bart felt that nobody really understood him during his teen years. That, to me, isn't abnormal, but no, to seems... this level, I feel right. like he he to hate your brother and your mom. And he said in various things that we watched, and we'll link all of that stuff, that he got along with his brother. They did stuff together, but he really hated his brother. But it was kind of one of those, like we had said before, he was – pretending to be someone he wasn't. He was putting on a front. You know, he was just trying to uh, please his parents and make do what he could to make them happy and he wanted to fit in and he kind of, he felt that he was different and that he wasn't like his brother and that if he could just be like his brother, maybe things in his life would be better or get better or, you know, it would just be different for him. So I think that's kind of where that came from. So he spent time with his brother and tried to do, do things his brother did in hopes that he would maybe become that kind of a person. Yeah. To find acceptance, I guess, in his family. That's, yeah. Bart casually dated a few girls in high school, but only one who he considered being in love with. That's more people than I dated in high school. So (laughs) she loved him in return and truly saw a future with Bart until she personally observed his delusional thinking and declining social function. Bart's mother never liked this particular girl and felt that she wasn't feminine enough and wasn't, quote, socialite material, something Bart felt was entirely too important to his family. That seemed to be a recurring theme to him um, through the psyche vows and stuff that he felt like that's all they cared about. But see, that was his perception, but that's what they say. Like, your perception is your reality. So whether we would agree with that or not is really irrelevant. It's just that's how he felt at the time that that was so important to his family and that he didn't like that aspect of his family. He thought they put too much importance on things that didn't matter, you know, on material things and social status. And those things weren't important to him. So I think that played a part in the way he eventually started feeling towards his family. Yeah. One thing you commented or you mentioned earlier about Asperger's and stuff, I feel like this was such a long time ago that we didn't really understand those sort of things. Like in society, I don't want to get too deep here, of course, and I can't, but I feel like now in our society, like we're more understanding that families have different people in them, that every family's not perfect. I feel like we see that more now. You just didn't know you were a kid. So I've, I'm glad we've kind of <laughs> come along. Yes, <laughs> I really am. So Bart continued seeing his girlfriend after high school, but the relationship ended after she confronted him about cheating on her with both men and women. In college at Sam Houston State University, Bart began to experiment with methamphetamines and befriending more people that were kind of in that dark misfit type of crowd. As his life began to unravel, his parents just continued to throw things like nice things at him. I mean, they would lavish him with expensive gifts. They bought him a condo on Lake Conroe, which if uh, anyone who is familiar with the Houston area will know that that area, the Lake Conroe area, there's money there. I mean, it's it's a wealthy neighborhood. It's yeah. certainly not, I mean, 
let's put it this way. If I lived there, it would be my dream to live on Lake Conroe. And I it would be like beyond a dream to be able to buy my children a condo on Lake Conroe. Yeah. So um, that's, you know, the family is doing well. It's definitely a nice area. Right. Um, on December 10th, 2003, Bart called his family to let them know that he had passed his final exams, the final ones that he would be taking that he needed to graduate. And he was going to be graduating with honors from Sam Houston State. His parents were proud and delighted and invited Bart to come home so that they could celebrate his success. They gave him a Rolex watch as a graduation gift, and the family, including Bart's parents as well as his brother Kevin, went to a celebratory dinner at a popular Cajun restaurant where they took many happy photos, including one in which Bart is smiling over a dessert plate with the word congratulations written on the top in chocolate. You know how they decorate a plate whenever you have an event at a restaurant. So it was like, um, they said it was his favorite dessert, bread pudding. And they had... Boring. Yeah, it's like the worst dessert ever. Give me a break. (laughs) I wonder he was so miserable. (laughs) He doesn't even like good dessert. (laughs) That's a highlight of your day. No, sir. (laughs) So from the photos that are taken of this night, um, which we might share a few of them uh, on our page or we'll we'll post some of them in the show notes. But looking at these photos, you would never think. It looks like they look like a very happy family celebrating their son's upcoming graduation. Uh, You would never be able to tell that just a few moments later, this whole family was going to be really changed for life. Yeah, I think the timeline was 10 minutes. The pictures were taken 10 minutes before they left the restaurant. When the family returned home, Kevin and Trisha made their way to the front door with Kent following behind them. Bart said that he had forgotten his cell phone in the car and needed to go back and get it. His brother entered the house through the front door and was immediately shot in the chest, killing him instantly. And when Trisha walked in right behind him, she suffered the same fate. As Kent Whitaker made his way into the home, he was shot by the intruder as well, suffering a non-lethal injury to his upper arm. I think it was like six inches from his heart. Yeah, so he was very lucky. Very. Bart, who had straggled behind the rest of the family, came into the house to see that his brother, mother, and father had all been shot, and there was a masked man staring back at him. A struggle ensued, and Bart was also shot in the left arm while chasing the intruder out the back door. Moments later, a neighbor dialed 911 and frantically told the operator that someone had just shot their neighbors and that they needed help. Bart also made a 911 call from inside the house saying that he had been shot by an intruder. When police arrived, Kent and Bart were taken to the hospital for treatment. Detectives found a 9mm Glock handgun on the floor near the victims, as well as a glove that had been dropped outside of the home. But other than that, there wasn't much else in the way of evidence. The scene appeared to be a burglary with drawers pulled open in bedrooms, although they couldn't find anything that was missing except for Bart's cell phone. There were no suspect fingerprints that they could find at the scene. Just a few hours after the shootings at the Whitaker residence, police were notified of another shooting just a few miles away. The suspect in this shooting had gone into a home, tied up a family, and beat them before fleeing. Police began to track the suspect down, convinced that they were onto the person who was likely also responsible for the Whitaker murders. The police chased the suspect to a nearby apartment complex, but before they could take him into custody, the man had shot himself. It was 22-year-old Lathan Jackson, a man who had prior felony arrests and seemed to fit the bill for the crimes. But when police used a sniffer dog to determine if Lathan had been in the Whitaker home, it was not a match. The dog did not find the same scent on Lathan that he found on the glove or on the pistol left at the Whitaker crime scene. So police knew that the killer that was involved in the Whitaker shootings was still on the loose. Officers sent the gun found at the crime scene for forensic testing, and they found a partial palm print on the side of the gun. 
but they were unable to identify who it belonged to. They ran the serial number on the gun in hopes of finding who the shooter could have been, and to their surprise, the gun came back as being registered to Kevin Whitaker. On one visit to the crime scene, police discovered that there was a gun in the safe in Kevin's upstairs bedroom that had been pried open with what police thought may have been a crowbar that had been painted blue, a conclusion they came to after finding flecks of blue paint left on the safe in the area that had been forced open. So you break in and you steal someone's gun? Right. But that was kind of one that was one of the first things that they that kind of tipped them off that maybe at least they were thinking that potentially whoever did this knew the family and right. knew exactly where to go to look for the weapon. Right. Because obviously if you're gonna go upstairs and pry open a safe, you probably knew it was there to begin with. Right. Is kind of what their logic was. Yeah, like you already have a crowbar. Right. So <laughs> what that's the next step, I guess. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. As officers continued their investigation, they began to feel that the details of the crime scene were not adding up. It appeared to them that the scene had been staged and that even though there were drawers pulled out, there was nothing missing from the home, which led them to believe that this was not, in fact, a burglary. How often does that happen, though? Like, officers very quickly go into a scene and just see a bunch of drawers knocked over, and they're like, yeah, nobody stole anything. They just made a mess. Yeah. And, I mean, how do they know if anything was stolen? That's what I always wonder when they say, oh, but nothing was missing from the home. Well, how do they know? How do well, they know if there wasn't jewelry or something missing? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess it would be, I guess the idea is there's jewelry other places. So why right. why didn't they take that jewelry? And they just kind of made a mess of things. So as detectives are starting to try and piece together everything that's happening, they started interviewing acquaintances and friends of the family. They started by interviewing Bart's roommate, Chris Bashir, 
as well as another one of Bart's good friends named Steve Champagne, both of whom denied having any involvement or knowledge of what had taken place that night. So the media really took a hold of this story in this case and ran with it. Um, the One of the detectives, Sergeant Slot, who was working the case, had said that he actually thought it was a big joke whenever the dispatcher had called and said, like, you need to go to this crime scene because they didn't typically see things like this right. in Sugarland. So when he found out that there was um, a quadruple shooting, he was like, what? Like, there's absolutely no way. Like, that kind of thing just doesn't happen here. Yeah. So you can imagine with something like that, the media is all over it because right. it's big news, you know, yeah. whenever you're in a small town. So one reporter who was working the case contacted Sam Houston State University to find out more information about Bart's education. He wanted to know the details of the type of degree that he was going to be awarded so he could include those details in a story that he was writing for the local paper. The first of many bombshells came when the reporter was told that Bart Whitaker was not a student at the university and there was no record or evidence that he was getting any degree from them. Wow. Yeah. The school had Bart listed as a freshman who was on academic probation, which is hardly the story that Bart had given his parents about graduating at the top of his class. The reporter ran the story anyway, uh, including this information, and when detectives read over the article and learned that Bart had lied to his family about attending the university, they felt that that immediately pushed him to the top of the list of people of interest in this case. It's one of those things where if you lied about something that big, what else could you have possibly exactly. lied about? Because that's a big deal to tell your parents for years. I mean, this isn't like a little white lie. This is saying, yeah, mom and dad, like, give me all your money. I'm going to college and getting an education right. and come to find out you have dropped out in your freshman year and you're supposed to be graduating now. Like, yeah, that's a also, long time. we're celebrating your big night tonight and right. now most of us are dead. Right. That's a lot. Yeah, that, that it is. And so you can kind of see how the police were like, whoa, that's, you know, right. that's a big detail. But also it always makes it's like so interesting how that kind of came to light that a reporter just simply wanted to get information for a story and was just doing reporter research. And right. then that ended up being something that kind of led the police, you know, gave them something to kind of follow. Something to go on. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So officers immediately took this information about the lie to Kent, who was still in the hospital, and he was furious whenever he found out about it. He had just said, like, how can my son do something so stupid? And really, of course, I'm sure was confused about what was even going on. I mean, these right. officers are not only have have you been informed now that your wife and your young son, your younger youngest son is are dead, but then also your older son who has survived has been lying to you and was not going to be graduating. So I that's a lot at one time right. to be feeling all of that. And um, one of the things in this story that we thought was really, really like special and important was that when Kent was in the hospital recovering from getting shot, I mean, he was shot as well, um, in his hospital bed, he just kind of laid there and you know, this was a, a family that was, um, they were religious, they believed in God. And so he laid there and prayed in his bed. And he made the decision that he was going to forgive whoever was responsible for this. Yeah. He didn't know who it was. Of course, never thinking that anyone that he knew had anything to do with it. Um, didn't care. Uh, yeah. Didn't matter. He was truly just going to find forgiveness in his heart for whoever had done this yeah. to him. And he said that once he made that choice, it was like a, a burden just lifted off of him. Yeah, because he said he was overwhelmed with revenge, like wanting revenge. He just was so filled with anger and stuff, you know, 
look at what's happened to his family. And then he did say he made that decision. And I love that part of this. Yeah. Well, forgiveness is an important thing. um, Yeah. I think. And, and it's really remarkable. I think when somebody goes through something like this, that they can get to a place where they are able to do that, especially so soon afterwards. I mean, he's still in the hospital. Yeah. This has just happened. Um, so anywho, so he goes, he gets in his wheelchair and goes down to the room where Bart is because Bart is also in the hospital. He's also been shot and goes down to confront him about this lie that the police have said that he has has told his family. And uh, Bart didn't really have a lot to say for himself. No. I mean, how do you, you can, there's no getting out of that. You did. How do you, you deny did. it? Yeah. yeah. There's, there's not much you can really say there. Yeah. So around this same time, while Bart and Kent are still in the hospital, an officer who just happened to have a really good memory. Yeah, not um, me. Yeah, I know. I would never be the one to put this together. Uh, but he remembered an incident from about two years prior in which the Sugarland Police Department had contacted the Whitakers after they had received a tip from the Waco Police Department that Bart was on his way to Sugarland to kill the family. Um, allegedly, a friend had overheard Bart discussing having his family murdered at some point, and this was like the, like I said, two years before. Right. And so, this person who had overheard Bart talking about this had informed police, and the police alerted the local authorities, and they alerted the Whitaker family. And then, at the end of all that, they determined that it was nothing more than just some drunk college kids playing a prank and. It, there was no threat to right. the family at this time. So they let it go and nobody followed up on this and nobody really looked into it any further. It was just determined to be. Yeah. They, uh, Kent said he very much thought it was just like the rumbling ramblings of like drunk college students and right. they never, but that if you're looking at this, it's a really big deal. Right. It's huge. And, but you would almost think too, though, that Kent himself would remember from that event from two years ago, like after this. Although I guess not really. You're not thinking. You're not thinking. You about have to that. think. You know, I'm thinking my kid did this to be able to come to that conclusion. He's probably more so racking his brain on who could have done this, and that's not in his head at all. Yeah. Once Kent and Bart were released from the hospital, both men returned to live to their home in Sugarland and continued to live together, but Sergeant Slut was concerned. Mandy, Sugarland, you grew up in the Houston area. Does Sugarland, do you know that area? Is that an area you knew? <laughs> Not really. Okay, well. I was young when I lived in Texas. Okay. I was, um, we left Texas when I was like seven. But did you watch Designing Women? No. No. <laughs> Delta Burke played Suzanne Sugarbaker, and the whole time, I just want to say Sugarbaker, the whole time that we're talking about Sugarland, and no one's here to do that with me, and so that's just my my <laughs> my inclusion to this episode. So thank you, Delta Isn't Burke. There a band named Sugarland? There is a band named Sugarland. They annoyed the di- living daylights out of me. Okay. They're very, <laughs> she was very twangy, and I didn't buy it. No. Did not buy it at all. So back to the story. Sergeant Slot actually believed that Bart was really the prime suspect in this case and that Kent, who was an intended target, was still in danger if he was living with Bart under the same roof. But can you imagine for that officer to have that thought that he is dealing, you know, you have to tread lightly because what are you really going to say? You're going to say, I think your son has something to do with the death of your wife and your other son, so don't live with him. Like, how do you approach that 
without offending someone. Right. What if you're wrong? Right. Your your family's dead and hey, I think your son's trying to kill you. Also have a good night. Right. You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You have to be very careful with that when you don't really have any proof of it other than just there, you have a hunch and there's a few clues maybe that might point to some kind of involvement. But the fact of the matter is Bart was there that night and also was shot. So right. from Kent's point of view, I could see how it would come off very offensive to have an officer oh, yeah. being like, your son is involved in this, you know, and you wouldn't want to believe it. For sure. So for seven months, Bart lived with his father and the two spent a lot of time together reading the Bible and bonding. Kent recalls his time he spent with his son and says that he truly believed Bart had nothing to do with what happened to his family. Kent actually spoke about being in the hospital and saying that he was completely filled with revenge. Just he wanted to get whoever did this to his family, whoever ruined their lives, whoever took his wife and his son and shot his other son and hurt him. And so at that point, he said when he was just overcome with revenge and rage, he decided to pray about it and that he made the decision right then and there that whoever had done to this family, no matter who it was, he was going to forgive them. Late one night, about seven months after the murder, a man named Adam Hip walked into the police station claiming to be an old college friend of Bart's, which is funny. He had college friends since he wasn't really in college. Well, he was still <laughs> living in the condo provided yeah. by his parents and having friends. His friends were college friends. Yes. He was just the friend, the friend with a condo. He alleged that Bart had previously tried to convince him to gun down his family, but that the plan fell through at the last minute. When he described the plan that he and Bart had discussed, Sergeant Slot was surprised to hear that it was almost identical to the way the family was actually killed. They decided to set up a recorded phone call in which Adam would try to get Bart to confess to masterminding the murders of his family members. When Adam had Bart on the phone, he pointed out that the way his family was killed was very similar to the plan that they had previously discussed. And Bart became agitated and said, Adam, stop saying our plan. It wasn't. Stop saying that. We got to hear edit or audio of that and that yeah. was really kind yeah. of he was he got very sharp with him and was yeah. like stop like don't say that anymore like clearly yeah. he knows right. you know you're being watched and all right. that stuff and he was like this we're not doing this this is not our plan it was very that was very emphasized throughout yes so bart then agrees even though it wasn't their plan right that he's going to give adam twenty thousand dollars to keep quiet he sent him a $250 deposit through a courier. Which, by the way, a $250 deposit on $20,000 seems a little low, if you ask me. <laughs> to keep for hush money? Like, shouldn't he be sending me, like, at least $2,000 as a deposit? I know. Like 10% I want to talk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> $250 is not going to keep me quiet. <laughs> I can see quiet through, like, four McDonald's trips. Yeah. And I, I'm going to need something to eat here, buddy. So one interesting note was that Bart was actually obsessed with the movie The Usual Suspects with Kevin Spacey and like a million other people. Um, and he said he identified with the main character, Kaiser Sozi. In the movie, Kaiser kills his family as well as others he worked with throughout the time of the movie. Um, the deposit that was actually sent to Adam, that measly $250, had Bart's return address on it with the name on the package as being K. Sozi. And that kind of talks about his break in reality where he's – Kind of, even in the midst of this, he's not really taking, not that he's not taking it seriously, but he's like taking on this other identity. And obviously he thinks that guy's a cool guy or, you know, right. whatever. It's just walking that line between reality and fantasy. Yeah, and like, like of all names I could pick, I'm going to pick this guy that also killed his family. And, you know, I've right. got this like And like that's not going to raise some alarm bells. Yeah. You know, that, that of that choice. Yeah. You know. Have you seen that movie? Yes. Oh, yeah. 
course. Andy, of course I've seen well, Usual Suspects. You can't say, like, of course, like, every time we talk, we've both seen the same things. I mean, don't ask me any details. It's one of those movies I feel like I've watched right. many times while I've been half getting awake, ready half to go to sleep. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. You do remember the last scene. We can't spoiler alert it, but the last scene is, like, iconic. And you haven't, if you haven't seen it, maybe I'll put it in the show notes. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah, yeah I sure. love it. I might well, go home and a, watch it after um, talking about it tonight. I'm not. It's like 8.30. Are you kidding? I'm going to be asleep in like <laughs> 45 minutes tops. Let's wrap this up, Mandy. <laughs> so police warned Kent that his son was potentially dangerous and wanted him dead and strongly advised that they live separately. But Kent was still in denial and refused to believe that what the police were saying was true. It was just too hard for him to face the fact that his son could be a monster, and it was easier to believe that the police just had it wrong. A short time later, in July 2004, Bart disappears. He just drops off the face of the earth. Done disappeared. Done disappeared. His SUV was found abandoned and running outside of an apartment complex in Houston, but he was nowhere to be found. Of course, the police believed this was suspicious and wondered what reason Bart would have for just taking off. And at this point, Kent was running out of reasons to believe his son was innocent as well, yeah. which is just so hard because I know you got to be grasping at like everything, but you have to like be honest with yourself. Like, and now he, when he takes off, why would he do that? Right. You know, and, and Kent even said like, I was running out of things to like convince myself that he was innocent yeah. you know at this point it looks really bad whenever right. you just take off whenever the police are investigating this whole this whole thing little did they all know that bart had fled to Soralvo, mexico which was about 50 miles south of the border and seven hours away from sugarland the locals were surprised to see an american looking for work in their town but they believed bart's cover story which was that he was a soldier who had gone awol uh, from the military after being shot and too scared to go back. So that's what he used. Of course, he had actually been shot. So that's right. how he explained his injury and also the reason why he's in Mexico. Yeah. So while Bart was living in Soralvo, he assumed a new name. He was not going by Bart Whitaker, obviously. That would be too stupid because he was being sought in the United right. States. So he actually had changed his name to Rudy Rios, and that's what he was going by. And he was really well-liked among the people in this little Mexican town. He even started attending church there and just kind of living like a normal person. So in addition to changing his name and assuming this whole other personality, he also changed his appearance. He had dyed his hair darker. He grew a mustache. Uh, anything that would make him look like he fit in down where he was living. He did a whole Scott Peterson thing. Remember when Scott Peterson like dyed his hair and stuff? But he – did you ever see Scott Peterson's dye job? Remember whenever he colored his – It was like orange <laughs> yeah. and or, – I'm like, you actually stick out way more right. now, buddy. Yeah, yeah you should have just left it. Yeah. Um, so he started attending church in Soralvo, and when he was going there, he met a girl named Cindy Lou. She played guitar – and was she in Whoville? I know. I couldn't believe her name was Cindy Lou. And I had to rewind it like a couple times. Like, I just loved it. It was great. Um, so whenever he met Cindy, they kind of started taking a liking to each other. And she thought that he was mysterious, which 
I guess to her he was. So um, real quick point. If somebody's mysterious, they're probably hiding a lot of stuff. Right. And that's like a real <laughs> terrible idea to be like, I want to go with the mysterious one. But that's like such no. a thing of like in the movies, like, oh, the mysterious guy. But like, no, in reality. He's going to murder you. Yeah, that, that doesn't translate. Like, <laughs> it does not translate well at all. This is where romantic comedies have screwed us all over. Yeah. <laughs> so as the two of them became closer, she introduced him to her parents, who also quickly grew to love him. And and Cindy's father said he also grew to love who he thought was Rudy, like a son, and even offered him work. So he was just down there building a whole new life, getting his way into a whole new family. A whole new world. It's just, it's weird, <laughs> if you ask me. Yeah. But I mean, the family, they liked him. You know, they thought he was a nice person and a good worker, and the da- daughter liked him. And yeah, I guess they thought he was just... The man of their all of their dreams. <laughs> In the words of Prison Mike, the bell of the ball. So everything was going great until one night Cindy Lou got in a fight with her mom and and after this argument, she smashed up her precious guitar and she was very upset. And so Bart So Cindy smashed her own guitar yes. for being mad at her mother. Yes. These two are actually quite a pair. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's like cutting off your nose to spite your face. Um, Whoa, Mandy. I like that one. <laughs> so after Cindy had smashed this guitar and had gone all out in an argument, Bart, a.k.a. Rudy, uh, told her, just, just calm down. It's going to be okay. You know what we can do? We can kill your parents. Well, that's the next logical step. Broken yeah. guitar, parents <laughs> you don't have to be mad at them anymore because they don't have to be here yeah so that's like totally logical so she said that she was worried which I think is an understatement I don't know how yeah, worried just, about the mysterious man yeah. a little late now Cindy a little late now <laughs> but she also felt that she knew him better than that and that he would never do something like that for real so I don't really know she just wrote it off like I don't know that he wasn't serious, I guess. Um, <laughs> Cindy Lou, I've got some. Qu- <laughs> I got some questions. Cindy Lou, I've got some questions for you. Back in Sugarland, Sergeant Slot was still trying to piece the case together after nearly eighteen months. He had no real evidence against Bart, nor did he really know where he was. Finally, a break in the case came when Bart's former friend Stephen Champagne contacted Sergeant Slot, claiming that he wanted to make a confession involving himself and Bart's former roommate. Chris Brashear. Now, these are the same people they've already spoken to right. earlier on. These are like the closest people that were in Bart's life. His, quote unquote, college, college friends. friends. <laughs> right. I think there's a movie about that. While the tapes rolled, Steve outlined in detail how Bart had recruited the two men in his plot to murder his family. He told the detective that he was the getaway driver tasked with the responsibility of keeping watch over the family as they went to dinner while Chris entered the Whitaker home using a key and the alarm code given to him by Bart. There's another sign. The alarm didn't go off. Oh, like, yeah. it's an inside job. It's an yeah. inside job. Mm-hmm. He said that after the shootings, Chris got into his car and told him that he had shot Kevin first, then Trisha, then Kent, and then pretended to wrestle around with Bart before shooting in the shoulder as they had planned. He then dropped another bombshell and said that the two of them had taken a bag full of evidence from the crime scene and tossed it over a bridge into Lake Conroe, just a short distance away from where Bart's condo was located. Detectives immediately set up a dive team to search the area, but the bridge was quite long and it took them three dive attempts before they were able to recover a duffel bag. 
It was the biggest break in the case that they had uncovered up to this point. And keep in mind, we are nearly two years out now. Right. It's been a very long time. So on the third dive attempt, they recovered a bag that had several of the items that police had been searching for and everything they needed to tie Bart to the crime. They found a water bottle that was about half full, four bullets that were identical to the ammunition used in the murders, a glove that matched the one that was found at the crime scene, a pry tool that had trace amounts of blue paint on it, and a badly damaged cell phone. Forensic investigators had their work cut out for them. Since it had been nearly two years that the evidence had been submerged in about 20 feet of water, they weren't really sure if they were going to be able to collect any like DNA evidence off right. of any of this stuff. But they were, of course, still going to try. They swabbed the inside of the cap of the water bottle, and they were able to get a DNA profile. I, uh, they said that they got it off of the threads that were in, on the inside of the cap. Right. So basically where somebody had taken a swig out of the water bottle, put the cap on, then the threads on the inside of the cap is where the DNA was. Isn't that crazy? It is so crazy that they can get DNA off of something like that. And then it had been submerged in water for two years. Right. And that's just... That's crazy to me that it was they were still able to collect enough DNA to actually be able to get a full profile to match it to someone. Yeah. That bottle company should really pat themselves yeah. on the back. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah, able to withstand like the waters of rivers and lakes and stuff. Right. That should be their new marketing logo. So they marketing logo. I said slogo. <laughs> a slogo. Like a slogo. I still did it. Slogan and a logo. It works. Go with me. Yeah. There you go. Okay. So uh, they did test that, and the DNA that they found on the cap came back as a match to Chris Brashear, which just confirmed the story that Steve had told them about Chris being there that night and having something to do with it. So they, of course, were ecstatic to have this. This is a huge piece of evidence. Yeah. And now they, because this part of the story was true now that it has the whole thing has more credibility so right. they're kind of like well then we kind of believe you that bart really did set this up and that this is what happened that night right so they also the cell phone that they found in the bag of course they suspected that it was bart's because that was the only thing they couldn't find the night that the family was killed and they didn't but they weren't sure if they were going to be able to recover any information to prove that because, again, it's an electronic that's been submerged in water for two years. But If I drop mine in water for half a second, it's yeah, over. Yeah, I over. know. It's incredible to me that they are able to – There's not enough rice in the world to yeah, save this no, phone. I, know. I think they were using techniques that were a little bit more advanced than rice. Jasmine rice? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they were able to – I don't know how. They worked on it. They had fancy computer people that were able to. All those computer people, (laughs) y'all. Down in Sugarland. Yeah. They were able to determine that it was Bart's cell phone. Apparently, they were able to get enough information off of the phone where they said, this is definitely your phone. So they, that's what you need. You have to have proof of it. You know, you can suspect it all you want, but if you can't prove it. Finally, in September of 2005, the hard police work comes to an end when the real Rudy Rios... Please stand up. Real Rudy Rios. (laughs) Eminem is here for you. Calls the Sugarland Police Department and tells Sergeant Slot that he had sold his identity to Bart and helped him flee to Mexico for a couple thousand dollars. But Rudy himself has a snake. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. This guy sold his identity for a couple thousand dollars. What are you doing, Rudy? (laughs) 
What are you doing, Rudy? If you're going to take my identity, it's going to cost you a lot more than that. Okay. I love the show Nathan for you, and you don't watch that. It's one of my favorite shows. Um, He, like, had to try and convince somebody to do something like open up a business, but he needed them to have, like, a specific name. So he asked people on Craigslist if people would be willing to literally change their identity to a name like, I don't even know, everything's something. First name is everything. Last name is something. Something that stupid. And people were like, sure. Yeah, I'll do it. (laughs) And I'm talking for like $250. They were like, yeah, I didn't really like my name to begin with. So there are people out there, Mandy, that will do stuff like this. I mean, but it's not just changing your name. It's selling your identity. You don't think you can buy a new identity from somebody else? Clearly there's like an (laughs) underground market here that we're not privy to. I guess so. So Rudy was a snake himself and thought that the $10,000 reward being offered by police for information leading to Bart's arrest sounded pretty good too. And he was willing to sell Bart out in order to cash in on it. Wow. Dollar, dollar bills, y'all. It just doesn't take much for this guy to do really anything, huh? Sure, I'll sell my identity. Sure, I'll sell you out. (laughs) Like, if there's money involved, I'll do whatever you say. Like, this guy was a real piece of work, too, if you ask me. (laughs) Literally everyone in this story, with a couple exceptions, are... Real salt of the earth types. Yeah, yeah. Bart was arrested in Mexico without a problem, and he was extradited back to Texas. When he was asked how he was able to convince all these people to help him carry out these crimes, he said that it was easy. All he had to do was offer people what they wanted. So many lives ruined, you know, all of this is done for really nothing. Yeah. We have to say this all the time. This happens all the time, but you get so many people involved and these accomplices. What are you thinking to right. do this for this guy? Just, I don't understand. Chris Brashear pled guilty to capital murder and was given a life sentence. Steve Champagne was given 15 years for his role as a getaway driver. And Bart was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death. Since Bart's conviction, he has exhausted all of his appeals. He was scheduled to be executed by lethal injection on February 22nd, 2018. That was not very long ago. That was a month ago. In a shocking move, 30 minutes prior to his execution, Governor Greg Abbott granted clemency to Bart, and instead he will now serve a life sentence with no possibility of parole and will not ask for or seek any additional appeals. So this is insane. He was 30 minutes away from being executed for these crimes and... I mean, got out of it. That's like a miracle. Well, I remember watching this, waiting for this to happen because this is like a case I remember watching on Oprah. Like I've, this case has always fascinated me and upset me and moved me and all those things. And I remember knowing that that was the day it was going to happen. And I was sad for his dad because I knew his dad was not wanting this to happen. And so for the governor to grant clemency, it almost never happens, especially in Texas. Right. So- It was really, really shocking. The parole board who voted to grant clemency by a 7-0 vote spoke out after saying that they had to ask themselves, quote, is clemency warranted where execution might be justice for a wicked crime yet would also permanently compound the suffering and grief of the remaining victim? In the days leading up to what would have been Bart's execution, Kent spoke out saying, quote, victims' rights should mean something in this state, even when the victim is asking for mercy and not vengeance. So the father who has suffered the loss of his wife and his other son and this son has done this and is responsible for this, he's the one advocating, don't kill my son, don't send my son to death. Yeah. Um, And it's it's 
it's craziness. It's hard to even imagine. And they went for it. I mean, they said they agreed if it was going to make the father's life more miserable to lose his last remaining son, his last remaining family, um, then they felt that that would be more of a punishment for Kent than it would for Bart. So that's really how, that's really what happened, essentially. So since the murders, Kent has remarried and written a book titled Murder by Family. And that is... It's a great book. Melissa has read the book. I really want to read it now after learning more about this case. I think I would really enjoy reading the book. And um, maybe I will. There are two Murder by Families. I accidentally ordered the first one after seeing him on Amazon. And I was like, wow, this book's only $1.50. I wonder why. He's on Oprah. And it was a very graphic story about a family that was killed in Alaska. Zero out of 10. Would not recommend. But this one is wonderful and, you know, such a testament to Kent and his ability to forgive. This obviously has similarities to the Aaron Caffey story where both Mm -hmm. dads were victims, you know. Um, and and they were able to find forgiveness. So we'll link that to the show notes as well. So that was our story for the week. Melissa, do we have something to do for <laughs> last thing before we leave, last thing before we go? I don't Hashtag even know what it is. Hashtag last thing before we go. I thought there were some really good suggestions this week, and I'm really excited. There I can't are. wait to see which ones you chose. So I tagged you on one. Maybe we'll do two. I don't know, because this was kind of a bummer of a story. Maybe we'll see how long these go. Um, so the first one would be basically like best appetizers at restaurants. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and is Chili's Queso Dip the best one on the planet? Nope. It's the best queso. <laughs> Can I start a timer, please? Sure. Okay, oh start the timer. Gosh. Ready, <laughs> set. Is queso uh, at Chili's the best in the world? No. <laughs> <laughs> I say no because they put some kind of like actual chili or like They put hamburger mm, meat. There's like beef it. in there. I don't love it. Beef, it's what's for dinner, Mandy. I know, but I don't love it. I like, if I'm going to have queso, I just want it to be straight cheese. Oh, no. You don't cheese, like salsa? Cheese, cheese, Oh, yeah. Well, like salsa, salsa con or queso. like rotel tomato, something. Yeah. I don't want, I don't need to have meat in there. That's just too much. That is too gluttonous. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're already eating cheese. Back <laughs> off because it's amazing and I love it. And my favorite, like, do you ever order appetizers as meals? All the time. Okay. More than one usually. Yeah. So I was visiting uh, friends in Virginia. We went to all these little hole-in-the-wall places and – or not hole-in-the-wall, I shouldn't say. Like local places. And then the last day they're like, where do you want to go? And I was like, TGI Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> the most national chain. Because I wanted the entre- like the appetizers. Buffalo wings, mon- mozzarella sticks. What's the other one they give you? Oh, Potato skins. Those are my favorite. Yeah. I love potato skins with lots of sour cream on top. Mm-hmm. You know, at Chili, speaking of chilies, I also love the Southwestern egg rolls. Oh, yeah. Those, those are, are good. really good. With I love those. sauce thing that mm. comes with them. Anything you can dip in sauce. You guys know I'm a big fan of chilies. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> appetizers really are delicious, though. I love appetizers. Yeah, they're great. They're, yeah, this was a great topic because, obviously, we love them. It's food. It's food. <laughs> it's we easy can to never about. go wrong with that. Yeah, so appetizers always... I could eat all meals as appetizers. That's I'm fine with that. Yeah, I do that sometimes. Or we'll just agree to do that. We'll be like, well, let's just get a few appetizers and then we'll just have a big appetizer feast of like nachos and yeah. whatever. But, oh, else. but don't put any beef in there because <laughs> Mandy, that's well, nachos, too much. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Nachos with everything on them is different than having meat in your queso. Chunks of <laughs> chunks of beef in your queso. <laughs> Honestly, that's America right there. I love it. (laughs) I love it. The other one, we have like an extra minute. Um, 
Mandy, we're going to post these. I'll post them in all of our social media. I already posted one in our Facebook group. Mandy, what would you describe your high school photo as? Somebody asked us, Laura from The Fall Line, a great podcast, asked us um, to describe our high school senior photos. Mandy? So I have a couple that come to mind. So there's the one that they give you where, you know, okay, so you know when you take your senior photo that goes in the yearbook and you everybody has the same black thing on? Yeah, yeah. And I always used to wonder, like, before I took that picture, like, does everybody just go buy the same dress? Like, what is it? Well, no, it turns out it's just like a real cheap little thing yeah. you just, like, throw over your shoulder. Basically. To make it look like you're wearing, like, something nice when right? really it's just, like, a piece of, like, 99 cent black cotton. So anyway, that's what it is. So um, in that one, I don't know who told me that just like simply wearing my hair straight and stringy was going to be the most, you know, flattering look for yeah. me to do for senior photos. But that's what I did. And then of course I had like this super dark tan that probably wasn't even real because I did like a lot of tanning bed stuff. Sure. Um, so I was not very cute in that one. Well, then there's another one that was in the end of the yearbook that was kind of just like the extra section. And I'm wearing, and this is another one that my mom just couldn't stand because she did not want me to wear this top that I wore. It was like a halter And top. how excited were you to wear it? I was so excited. I thought, yeah. I, thought, I, thought, I, thought I looked great I'm a in senior it. now. Yeah, I can I, do this. Exactly. And I'll never regret this decision. Exactly. And so, but by this time that I took this photo, I had like, I have very dark brown hair and I had a at one point decided I wanted my hair to be lighter. So I think a lot of people with dark hair go through this crisis of, you know, identity. And I wanted my hair lighter. So I was kind of in the process of dyeing it lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. Well, what I ended up with was some kind of brassy color, like red. And then I decided to just like keep bleaching more like stripes into it. And so I don't even know what color my hair was. It was like red. You had a tiger head? I did. It was like red with like blonde highlights. But I thought it looked great at the time. But now it. when I look back at the photo, I'm like, what is that? I look awful. And I have on the worst shirt. And my mom hated it. It was like a little spaghetti strap halter top thing. I don't even know what store it came from. Probably Abercrombie because I was totally Forever 21. basic. I was a basic, you know what, in high school. So basic girl, basic girl, basic girl. I was a basic girl. <laughs> How about you, Melissa? Um, well, I looked at mine today because I was cleaning out my closet, and when Laura asked this, I was able to find this very quickly. My senior photo, I looked real good. I, um, I'm a very fair-skinned lady, and <laughs> I decided to be a um, a lifeguard for one summer. It was right before my senior year, and so I had to wear the like really thick bathing suit. You know, lifeguards have to wear like Pamela Anderson if you don't have a Pamela Anderson body. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I had that like real fat tan lines. Um, I wore a puka shell necklace. Oh, I love those. I remember those. But I meant to take it off when I got there. And no one said, you sure you want to wear a puka shell with this <laughs> with this other look? Those Nobody said it. Those people take those photos have probably seen it all. They're like, well... That's what she wants to wear. Somebody's mom <laughs> should get in there and be in charge of it. Beverly Goldberg from the Goldberg should be there and like <laughs> questioning everybody's like, you sure you want to do this? This isn't going to last forever. Yeah, I did that. I had really pencil eyebrows, like very, very thin. Um, my face was very pale compared to the rest of my skin because I've always been very concerned about not getting wrinkles. And then I decided <laughs> to have kids. So I don't know what the point there, what I was really saving myself from. And then I had really bleached blonde hair and I have a five head and I was like, let's just split it down the middle. I want you to see this five head, take it in. <laughs> like I felt like Tyra Banks and just embracing my forehead. I should never do that. So yeah, that was mine. And then I have random like volleyball 
pictures and stuff like that in the yearbook. And those are a lot more homely and more more like me. So that was about five minutes, and no one wanted to hear that. Um, so if you stuck around, congratulations. You get a cookie. We're not giving it to you, but we'll, you know, you get a virtual cookie, whatever that means. <laughs> we will share a few of these lovely photos yes. from a long time ago. <laughs> When we from yesteryear, yeah, from yesteryear, from when we cared and we could tan and exactly get we could go and I didn't worry about things like skin cancer and wrinkles and all those things you worry about small details, yeah, small details. I I have now realized that Snapchat filters because my kids like to play on the Snapchat on the Snapchat (laughs) put the word the in front of it. Um, They do nothing for neck wrinkles like from sun damage. I like I'm like man, my face looks so cute and. It's all, you know, cute and like an animal, which actually creeps me out a little bit that we're like, oh, I look like an adorable deer. I don't really really know what's going on there. But yeah, but nothing for the necklines. Just just neckline for days. So Snapchat, get on that. It really probably even makes it look worse because of the contrast of how great it makes your face look. And so then like, it's like, oh, then you get like, you see what the real you looks like down below the neck. It's just... I wasn't aware that this was going to be such a problem for me. It is. Okay. We're sorry that went on way too long. Should have cut the timer on. Um, We didn't. Thank you to Micah for giving us the wonderful idea for appetizers. I love them and now I'm very hungry. And Laura from the fall line for the embarrassing yearbook pictures. And we'd like to see yours too, Laura. This is our formal request. Yeah, we're going to start a post about it. Everyone can share. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. You guys have a great week. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.